welcome to the Geneva Health Files podcast. Geneva Health Files is a journalistic initiative that tracks power and politics in global health. Today's episode is a special one. This month in March 2022, we complete 2 years of running this initiative. My colleague Caitlin Green, a long believer of Geneva Health Files, will join us to help me recount the ups and downs of this fascinating experience. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you for joining. All right. So today we are going to talk about what goes into the production of Geneva Health Files. explore how stories are reported what entails running a niche newsletter in the heart of global health joining me today is pretty patnik the founding editor of geneva health files hi pretty thank you kitlin i uh, look forward to recounting this fascinating journey with you and for our listeners kitlin has been one of the first believers in our initiative 2 years ago when we had just begun so i've been grateful for her advice and the incredible sounding board she's been Thanks pretty. Uh it is easy to fall in love with Geneva Health Files. Uh so <laughs> it's been a lovely journey. But going back in time, back to March 2020 when the pandemic was unfolding and um we started all kind of collectively realizing that we'd never encountered anything quite like this before. You know, ultimately where Geneva Health Files began. So I'm curious what were you doing prior to the start of the pandemic? I have been a journalist now nearly 20 years and in the recent uh, years I've been reporting on global health so when the pandemic began I was uh, desperate to tell global health and trade stories from Geneva but it you know it was always challenging to convince editors on the importance of uh, the dynamics taking shape in Geneva also because a lot of these technical processes that are also highly political are very opaque So although Geneva has been the site where uh, public and private interests collide there's been very little scrutiny up until the pandemic that really changed everything. So you're in Geneva, you've been working as a journalist, you have enough experience to recognize that this is an absolutely monumental event um and the landscape is changing. Um I'm sure you also recognized just as the world's closing down you know there's a lot of increased struggle and strife for journalists and journalism across the world so why take a risk and start a newsletter sure great question i think i just you know found the compelling reason to actually connect the dots of everything that was happening uh, in geneva in those early days as united nations and other organizations were scrambling to put together a response to the pandemic almost on a daily basis things were moving very quickly and i just felt the need to document this and comprehensively report this and most importantly to to look at global health through an interdisciplinary perspective meaning that i was keen to tell the story not just from the lens of science and uh, health but also trade politics diplomacy and governance because all of these elements have come together to really distinctively shape how global health geneva responded to the pandemic So you made the decision I'm going to start a newsletter and I think that that's the other thing that's exceptionally nice about 
Geneva Health Files is this long form version and you can really trace these stories as they're developing and the interdisciplinary nature of them, again, like adds a level of depth and nuance to these events and developments that I think is really missing elsewhere. So you decide to start a newsletter. You want to tackle this challenge of capturing stories in this way. What do you do? Like, what's the first step in starting a niche, you know, critical global health newsletter? Sure. Looking back, it was not as neat and as clear as it now feels like. But essentially, I got sent a bunch of uh, documents. I remember this clearly. It was around the negotiations around the first resolution on the response to the COVID-19 pandemic that was being negotiated between countries at the WHO. And I had to publish quickly because these negotiations were sort of moving very quickly on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. So I, I just basically started a WordPress website overnight and started publishing, knowing that some of the readers who have been following me uh, over the last few years would, you know, be interested in what I have to say and the fact that no one else was at that point reporting on these negotiations. So one thing led to another. And before I knew a um, period of about uh, three months, we had a decent following. And it was the time when you decided to write to us and, you know, help us uh, work on this initiative. And then we decided to actually start a newsletter. So uh, we started self-publishing in April. And by August, we had a newsletter on Substack. And that basically gave us a framework to reach existing readers and then to enable new readers to sign up and you know, become a part of this community interested in these issues. Wow, like <laughs> what a journey, right? <laughs> I think it's really crazy because it's really easy to be kind of lost in like everything that's available, all of the news sources. You're jumping into an ocean and becoming a bigger fish as we <laughs> continue to see and watch. I think as a reader, I have an idea of a journalist, which is probably a caricature, somebody with like a pencil behind their ear and a notebook in their breast pocket. <laughs> but I'm curious, uh, you know, you working for other organizations, so you kind of have this institutional support prior to the pandemic, and then you move into this independent aspect of, you know, running your own newsletter and having your own newsroom. How do you make that transition? How do you still have the same access? How do you, you know, kind of follow stories? That's a great question. So I was, you know, working as a freelance journalist, which is very different from being an independent publisher, because as a freelance journalist, the organization you write for assumes the risk of liability, for example, and the fact that they support you with editing and all of that. But as an independent publisher, the buck stops with you and you're responsible for every single punctuation and word that goes on the newsletter because you're signing off on it. So in some ways, working independently as a freelance journalist and sort of negotiating my own battles had prepped me for this role. At another level, this is definitely a whole different ballgame because this is much more than journalism. And it's really also about you know trying to run a viable media initiative. Uh, we are not viable yet, but that's the path. So it's been really really, really interesting, but certainly I didn't come to this with skills of actually, you know, developing it into a business. Uh, this is something I learned over the last uh, two years. In terms of convincing people, sources, 
policymakers, officials, you know, why they should talk to an independent publisher. Frankly, that's something that actually did not hinder me too much, uh, partly because maybe I was already writing in the space before. And essentially, I think if you have a good question, most people would want to respond to it. And for that, I'm really grateful to the institutions in Geneva, who actually never once told me that we cannot answer, you know, we cannot respond to your question because you are not an institutional media person, but you're an independent publisher. That also goes to show that the world in general is prepared for independent publishing, particularly from journalists. And that, that's a whole different conversation on why this is so, but I'm glad this is so. We've had also, uh, you know, uh, moments of struggle when mainstream media does not, in fact, always link back to our work and so on and so forth. But over a period of time, readers recognize your consistent efforts and then you begin to be cited and so on. So do you feel like the aspect of being an independent publisher allows your sources to feel more comfortable? I mean, like I could see it both ways, right? Because I could see them not necessarily wanting to give you time and space, like if they're limited, but then I can also see it where they are more interested because they have a little bit more freedom to speak to you. That's a difficult question to answer, probably best directed to the source in question, but I think um, they probably go by the kind of questions that are being posed to them and the level of trust that any reporter establishes, right? The rules of the game, that how will this information be used and whether their identity, for instance, will be protected because a lot of what we write about are sensitive negotiations. So I think there's a certain level of time that has to lapse before you actually get into this kind of relationship where sources begin to trust you. And how do you go about initiating those kind of relationships? Well, I think to begin with, your previous work does help you in establishing the fact that you're serious about your work and, you know, you're genuine in your curiosity to understand more about a particular issue. So I think all of those elements go into building that trust with sources and the fact that they trust that you have done your homework and you're really not wasting their time and that kind of a thing. This is something that, of course, also comes after years of experience. And I was lucky to have had that behind me. So there is the interpersonal aspect of being a journalist and like networking and finding your way through global health in Geneva. How are you able to really kind of also keep an eye on developments, trace and track what's happening, keeping in perspective that like historical aspect to so many of these things? Because it seems like when you first start to engage with it, there's so many things happening. And so how do you sort of navigate that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think very early on, I had made the decision that, uh, you know, this is going to be a weekly sort of uh, news cycle in terms of producing something original that readers will not read elsewhere. And at that point of time, it seemed like a pretty manageable deadline. But just the pace at which the developments have taken shape over the last two years, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a punishing deadline as well. But the ground rules are that we are not too distracted by too many different things. We kind of make an editorial decision on what are the issues that are important to us, what are the events that we are going to track. And sometimes, you know, I have learned this over the years and months, but 
uh, really to define the editorial priority in terms of the issues that we want to talk about that do not get treated as comprehensively as they should by mainstream media. And that's where we would want to focus our attention on. The, the idea really is to give readers actionable information, information that they can benefit from. And that brings us to the question of why we charge for our content is because we go to great lengths to ensure that we are providing them exclusive and useful information. So I think it's a bit about also keeping a distance from what is happening. But, you know, as any good reporter, you have to keep an eye basically on everything that's happening, certainly keeping an eye and then focusing on the most important elements in any, any given week. Uh, but that really means reading lots of documents, reading all the time, and also, um, you know, reflection, intuition, thinking about these issues, and reporting all the time. You know, Twitter has actually changed the way reporters function. You know, we are technically gathering information when we are scrolling through Twitter. We are participating in conversation that goes into the promotions aspect of being an independent publisher. You want to be seen as contributing to some of the discussions unfolding. And when Europe goes to sleep, America wakes up. So it's a relentless new cycle. And we wake up. And when we wake up, Asia is already up and running. So so it's quite a punishing schedule. But the important thing to remember is what is the most important story of the week for the reader that they will not get elsewhere. So we try to be guided by that, but sometimes plans totally go haywire. You know, I plan a story on Monday morning and by Wednesday, everything has changed because there is this really unexpected development and that looks like it has been happening almost every single week. Yeah, trying to plan a story. <laughs> like I think in the early days we would talk about how you had like an editorial calendar that then just got completely pushed around and yeah, <laughs> messed with as different things developed. I think everyone around the world knows that being a small business owner is difficult. Uh, and... Um, it comes again with even more like kind of inherent risk. What have you seen as the biggest kind of hardships, whether you predicted them or not, in taking on this endeavor? I think I was lucky in terms of actually getting the right kind of support throughout this journey, you know, including from my spouse, who was really, really a critical sounding board. I would joke that, you know, it was like going through Shark Tank, you know, the uh, show where um, entrepreneurs pitch ideas to venture capitalists. So that actually helped me assess how this particular project can actually survive. And of course, I was also very lucky in, in getting your advice in those initial months. But what was really a turning point was getting through this short course on entrepreneurial journalism creators program that City University of New York had launched just as I had started working on Geneva Health Files. So that really helped me think about this journalistic initiative, the ways to make this into a viable media project. But I must confess, the question of viability is obviously the most important one, particularly for media entrepreneurs who have been freelance journalists, who have been through the vicissitudes of actually making a living out of journalism. So to that extent, this is definitely a question that we are still attempting uh, to answer fully. Like I said, we are not financially viable yet, but it's an it's a ongoing process. So I think one of the hardships is simply to have kept this going. Certainly the first year was really tough. We had a few reader donations, but the pivotal moment came when in March 2021, we decided to introduce a paywall 
with the assumption that readers will value for this content and will pay for it so following that we have met the industry standard of converting 15% of our overall readership you know to paying subscribers but at this point subscription revenues alone do not make us viable so to answer your question i think um, the real hardship is really to have kept this uh, going but we just kept receiving a lot of positive feedback and indications that this work is important and we must find a number of different approaches and ways to make this viable I mean really like the endurance aspect of keeping it going seems to be sort of the biggest challenge. Um is there anything that you felt like you had to sacrifice during the last 2 years to keep this going? Sure, I think the biggest of course investment more than anything is time, right? And as any media entrepreneur will tell you, the job is not over on Friday evenings at 6 p.m. It continues through the weekend. And sure, you know, my son was about a year and a half old when the pandemic began, so I I have actually definitely I feel lost out on spending more time with my family, but it's a kind of a journey that, you know, it's all consuming. So I think the unprecedented demands on time is something I did not expect in the sense that I did anticipate but when you go through it it's a whole different uh, ball game right and i think the constraints are always on time you you need additional time to read to unwind to write better to to think but during this whole process of course you know i've, I've also made great friends with other reporters and other media entrepreneurs so it has its downsides but it's it's been a great journey people definitely should not underestimate the need for work life balance for media entrepreneurs and this is a conversation that you and i have often had that it's important to be prepared for the long haul because this is just the kind of profession where the news never stops yeah it's clear i mean it's clear to me that we, i think you and i both struggle with work life balance but yeah definitely it's and it's hard to know when to draw a line when you're kind of running the ship and like you're in charge the and as you said earlier right the buck starts and stops with you so it's difficult to really then start to establish boundaries with your time however i do wonder like as the pandemic unfolded there suddenly became this increased need for journalism in geneva and with that came some you know i think increase in like financial support but you know that comes i think with ties right so how do you navigate the situation where you want to remain independent you want to be able to still express and follow certain stories without limitations and navigate you know this world where there are organizations and institutions that have certain you know funding available but also it comes with stipulations sure and that is um, the the gray area that every media organization big and small has to negotiate i think it's important to have clear boundaries right right at the outset and these are issues that we have been thinking about deeply and with careful consideration so yes we we have been pursuing donors to help us reach this threshold of viability and at the same time we are extremely mindful of the places we can go to and the places we must not uh, because we owe it to our readers and as a young media organization credibility is really all we have but for sure i think scaling up this initiative really means apart apart from you know getting donor support it has also uh, meant pursuing syndication arrangement exploring 
advertising avenues i think newsletter publishers do understand that traditional media depended too much on advertising but that does not mean that we must shut down all routes and, re- and any potential revenues from advertising but it just has to be extremely tailored and a pretty considered decision on what kind of advertising should independent newsletter publishers have particularly in political and highly sensitive areas such as global health journalism So so there are these you know countless business decisions one has to make on a daily basis and it seems that it's one of the best times in history to be a media entrepreneur simply because of the kind of resources we have you know there are advertising experts there are media experts who have really evolved and been through this whole journey the churn in the global media industry you know this has to be accompanied by not only fluency in the digital medium but to really understand what this kind of independent publishing means for journalism yeah it's a tricky tricky situation <laughs> so katelyn one question i would like to ask you uh, you know you have been with us you know on those many different conversations late friday evening calls as well talking about uh, what kind of donors should we reach out to you know do we work with civil society organizations or not lots of lots of uh, tricky questions that i could not answer myself so when you wrote to us in august 2020 why did you want to work with us volunteer your time with us through all these months so i think it's really twofold kind of what brought me to geneva health files one i formerly was a paramedic in the us i really was witness to what a for profit healthcare system did to individuals on the ground exactly what kind of tragedies unfolded and oftentimes i was witnessing those in people's houses Simultaneously I was also through my education was familiar with how much money is flowing into that health systems and hospitals that are privatized in the US you gain a certain familiarity with just the lack of oversight the lack of regulation and I think it looks fine on paper sometimes but when it unfolds and really when you watch individuals try and get healthcare and they just simply can't or it's inaccessible for a variety of reasons you know you start to sort of question why there isn't regulation and so i think that coming from that background and that history of just being really familiar with politics and healthcare and the us lobbying efforts and how so much money was going into dc and creating legislation that you know was happening at these really high levels and then i was in the back of an ambulance or in somebody's house or in an alleyway seeing that kind of tragedy that unfolds that's just a consequence of for profit healthcare I was in a transitional period at the time and I was actually taking global health policy at LSHTM at that point in my education it became really clear that financing was absolutely critical to so many different aspects of global health policy the ways in which high income countries were using aid to push their own narratives and their own agendas and then on top of that when global health projects and programs were being funded there wasn't this horizontal approach it was very like vertically oriented let's fund these vertical programs that look really great for our country or really great for the donor and there was this lack of real emphasis on the recipients um the recipient voice it just seemed like this new age version of colonialism that was really problematic So I then started to follow Geneva Health Files and you know was reading something I hadn't seen elsewhere 
And at one point, I think on one of your posts on WordPress, you had mentioned that you, you know, were interested in if anybody had any support or whatever. And I had some previous experience in grant management. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll just see, like, I'll just reach out to this lady and see if she's interested in, in taking on any help. Uh, yeah. And so that's kind of where the conversation started. And, you know, it was initially just like an interest of like, I'm really glad that this is happening. I think that there needs to be a spotlight on these things that are happening and definitely more critical engagement with, you know, who's making these developments happen and who's kind of behind it. But as I got more into more acquainted with you, more acquainted with Geneva Health Files, that understanding of the need for this just grew. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that's my instincts were correct. <laughs> Thank you for this. And I must also tell our listeners that obviously media entrepreneurship is a pretty lonely journey and it's very important to you know surround yourself with the, the right kind of support and people. And I'm glad Caitlin joined us. And so did other volunteers. So in May 2021, we basically started a, the Geneva Health Files Fellowship Program and we were just astounded by the kind of interest we had. Also this year, we're going to welcome a bunch of new experts, professionals, a lot of whom have had immense experience in global health, some of whom are researchers, doctors, health economists and um, uh, scholars. It's incredible. It's a great learning experience for us and for our readers to actually hear and, and benefit from the expertise of our fellows So thank you for that. Um, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, it's like an easy project to be passionate about. Okay, so we're looking back at the pandemic and I personally am really transported to where was I, you know, March 11th, 2020. And it's really grim um, in some ways. And then also like, I think just with this kind of challenge and everything that's happened, like I've seen a bunch of personal growth and development. I've also had a lot of weird pandemic things, funny, silly events, right? Is there anything during this pandemic period that's been particularly funny or of interest or silly that you've kind of encountered as self-publishing for Geneva Health Files? Sure, plenty of stories. Um, I think the funny and the happy bits are, of course, getting to know more people, let's say, make more sources and have these really interesting conversations with them. But also teaming up with this cross-border team of journalists, we did a bunch of investigations together and they have been like a support group throughout this period. You know, all of us talking about, reporting about the pandemic, you know, vaccine numbers and so on. That's been a great experience. A bunch of funny reporters from in different parts of Europe. Also a lot of funny incidents. Remember the time when I broke my hand? And I basically um, sent you an SOS. How do I communicate this to my readers? Help me write this email. We took a break of about 10 days because we couldn't publish. And then, of course, I started typing with my left hand for two or three months. But yeah, you really helped me face that moment, let's say. And also a lot of memories, you know, trying to record a podcast from inside a cupboard. And uh, not ideal, but great for acoustics. I had good laughs with my podcast producer about this. Lots of interesting moments and also stressful. The time when my three-year-old nearly published an edition of the newsletter because he kept, you know, he came and crashed into my uh, laptop. Quite stressful. But I think many parents have faced this situation uh, during the pandemic. You know, they're working with their uh, children at home. And um, so it's it's been challenging as it has been for anyone working during this period, right? I mean, I'm very grateful. I'm in a good position to be dealing with a pandemic. And this has been a definitely a journey. 
you know, there's this, I don't even know if you could really call it pandemic fatigue at this point, but just like apathy from a lot of different people across the world, particularly in high income countries. What do you see as the future of Geneva Health Files? Really, the genesis of the idea of Geneva Health Files began much before the pandemic, but it was always a bit daunting to think about self-publishing in those terms. We didn't have the kind of technology that facilitates, let's say, payment gateways and so on and so forth. It was not so easy back then, and this is, you know, 2015-2016. But I had always imagined, and obviously this was before the pandemic, that global health in Geneva needs scrutiny. And therefore, even beyond the pandemic, I definitely see the relevance of a journalistic initiative like Geneva Health Files for the simple reason that there are tons of issues that need to be reported. International health policy making is crafted in Geneva. This has relevance not only for for diplomats here, but for people all over the world. As this pandemic has shown who gets access to vaccines and who does not, everything from tobacco advertising to the issue of uh, trans fats to artificial intelligence, all of these issues are shaped in Geneva. Even as we are acutely aware that a lot of these decisions are taken in the private sphere, but this is where it's contested. This is where the public and private meet and therefore the need for more transparency and accountability in these kinds of discussions. So the future of Geneva Health Files is to really continue to look at these questions closely, to grow this community that we already have, to be the leading source of global health journalism in Geneva for anyone interested in global health all over the world. Because clearly this is not just about Geneva. Global health can be shaped from capitals, from the rural areas. It has implications and relevance everywhere. So I think I'm excited to see how this will evolve but also really to have fun in the process. It's been, it's been a really, really rewarding experience. Yeah. As for the future and the direction that you're going to take Geneva Health Files, five years down the line, do you have a big picture idea of maybe what this initiative will look like? Or hope, maybe. <laughs> We do hope that we become viable enough to actually survive in the long term, but really to also expand this because currently it's just, you know, effectively a one person newsroom. And then we also have volunteers and we have you on board to help us make these critical business decisions. But there is a need to expand and have at least one or two full-time reporters because there is more than we can write about and things are moving quicker than any of us can imagine. So I think the first priority would be to get at least one or two people on board. And I must confess that initially I did feel quite lonely at the beginning of this journey, but it's it's been fascinating to meet interested folks who believe in the need for global health journalism and who want this kind of critical approach to look at these issues. Well, that all sounds really exciting. I continue to watch Geneva Health Files grow week by week. It's really great to see how quickly things are developing and changing and growing. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Thank you to anyone listening. Um, We appreciate your time and your support of Geneva Health Files. We're going to keep working hard and trying to trace exactly what's going on in Geneva, Switzerland. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to visit Geneva Health Files at substack.com. And you can also write to us and follow us on Twitter. That's at Files Geneva on Twitter or at Pretpat on Twitter if you want to follow me. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks, everyone.